Let me ask you a question. Who loves Christmas? Some of you do. Some of you are like, I want to raise my hand, but I don't know what I'm volunteering for. You're not volunteering for anything. Just asking if you like Christmas. I, I love Christmas. Who loves, maybe you loved Christmas even more when you were a child. I mean, just the, 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 to use a term, some of you might get offended, but I don't care. The magic of Christmas. You know, it was just that magical, like, oh my gosh, it just... It was something special when you were a child. Who, who loves Christmas now, but even liked it a little bit more when they were a kid growing up? I loved Christmas as a kid. I mean, it was, it was everything. I, I lived for that Christmas morning. It was fantastic. I remember we'd get up, me and my older brother and sister, we'd, we'd wake up at like some god-awful hour, three in the morning, and uh, we'd crawl out, we'd try not to wake up our parents, we'd go at, get in front of the Christmas tree. First, we'd find our stockings, and we'd get our stockings and, uh, and, and lay all those presents out. And then we'd go to the tree, and we'd start pulling everything out from under the tree, right? And, and you'd make stacks and, and uh, find out who was the favored child that year. Because uh, we had no idea about value of gifts. It was all about volume of gifts. Whoever had the most was the most loved. I never got the most gifts. Um, Right, mom? Are you, yeah, yeah. Uh, no. Uh, uh, but, but maybe even more is who loves Christmas, watching it, experiencing it through the eyes of your child or a child, right? I mean, that, that, I love that even more than Christmas when I was a kid. I love when my kids were little. I mean, they're, they're grown now. They're, my youngest is going to be 17 uh, next month. And, and so it's not the same. But when they were little, I loved it. I mean, it was, I would go all out. Christmas Eve, I'd get a red flashlight and I'd be shining it in their window at like 11 o'clock at night. And uh, I'd, throw, I'd throw rocks up. I wanted to go on the roof. My wife wouldn't let me. So you'd fall and break your neck. So I'd throw rocks on the roof and shake jingle bells and and then in the morning, I'd be like, did you hear anything? And they'd be like, we were sleeping. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Put cookies out. And, and so Christmas morning, I wouldn't even let the kids. Like, they, they all want to always spend the night in, in the room together. So well, you can't come out on Christmas morning until we play the special Christmas song. It's a, it's a song by Rich Mullins. You got to get up. It's Christmas morning. Uh, but I would wait. I mean, you could hear them. The, the energy was building. I mean, it was like the door was going to blow off. And, uh, but I didn't, I'd be like, no, I got to finish my coffee. And my wife's like, let him out. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> so then we, we'd play the song and they'd come tearing down and, you know, we, we'd, we'd read the Christmas story from the Bible and, and, and then open presents and light candles, do all those kind of things. And at the end of the day, I would, the night before I would set up this huge, uh, scavenger hunt. I would take a couple of their presents and I would hide them somewhere. It's usually what they wanted most. And, um, so then Christmas was done. I'm like, did you get everything you wanted? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And then I'd be like, yeah, oh, there's a card up in the tree, or I'd hide it somewhere, and they'd find this card, and they'd be like, oh, it's a Christmas scavenger hunt. And they'd have to follow these things. It would take them an hour, sometimes two. They'd give, oh, we give up. I said, a bunch of... I said, come on, I'm excited. This is Christmas. And then they finally find the present. And so, I mean, I love that. And, and, and it's something special about Christmas, experiencing it yourself or watching it through the eyes of someone you love. But sometimes on Christmas, we can get overlooked, can't we? I remember uh, different times talking to people and they're like, hey, what'd you get for Christmas? Nothing. I didn't get anything. What do you mean you didn't get anything? Well, I got all this for my kids, but my kids didn't get anything for me. Or maybe you get older and all of a sudden it's like, hey, your parents are like, hey, you've graduated beyond the receiving of gifts. So you don't get anything from us anymore. And you're like, 
I feel forgotten and I feel overlooked. So husbands, please hear me. Your wife better get something on Christmas. If she says, oh, we don't need to exchange gifts this year. Remember the line from Return of the Jedi. It's a trap. <laughs> get her something. Doesn't have to be big, but get her something. Uh, but no, we can get overlooked. We didn't get that gift that we really wanted. Even as a child, you didn't get that gift that you really really wanted. And there's no scavenger hunt. There's no hidden gift at the end of the day. You just didn't get what you wanted. And you kind of feel like you were forgotten or overlooked or marginalized. And that can happen at Christmas to a lot of us. And I want to look at a part of the, the Christmas story to some people who were marginalized, who were overlooked, who were kind of outcasts and how Christmas brought them hope. So we're going to read in Luke chapter two. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or census, or census should be taken. This was the first registration when Quinerus was governor of Syria and all went to be registered in his hometown. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the house of bread, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. He went with Mary to be registered because they were betrothed and she was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So imagine Bethlehem is full to overflowing. I mean, the streets are alive. There's a buzz in the air. There's an energy. There's a electricity. I mean, fires are burning in the streets and people are warming themselves. Food is cooking. Conversations are happening because everyone had to travel for this census. And what happened was an unplanned trip that so many families had to take became an unscheduled family reunion. People who hadn't seen each other for years or maybe ever, but were related through ancestral lines are all coming together and they're catching up and they're connecting. It's a spontaneous celebration and it's fun and it's lighthearted and there's laughter and there's, and there's stories being told and everyone is enjoying this and embracing this wonderful moment. Well, everyone that is except Mary and Joseph who are being held at an arm's length. As I told you last week, the reason that there was no room for them at the inn was not because the inn was full, it was because no one would make room for them. See, everyone knew Mary was pregnant. It was quite obvious. Everyone knew she was pregnant and everyone knew that they weren't married, which meant they had committed fornication. They had sinned either with each other and Joseph got her pregnant or she was unfaithful to Joseph and she got pregnant by someone else, but it didn't matter. What they said was, it's not that we don't want to make a space for a pregnant woman. We don't want you in our house because we don't want your sin in our house. And so they were neglected. They were overlooked. They were pushed aside. But there's another group of people that were also overlooked and neglected and kind of cast aside. And it's this group of shepherds who are out on a hillside. And I could picture it. They're there on the hill and their sheep are all around them. And they can look down into the, the valley there. And, and they're not far away. And, and there's the town, the city of Bethlehem. And they could see the fires burning and the town silhouetted by the darkness of the night. They could hear the crowd and the laughter, and they could hear people talking. They could even smell the, 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 the aroma of the food as it wafts up the valley along the side of the hill. But they're not invited in. They're not 
asked to come join the festivities and the celebration. So they sit there and wonder, what are we missing out on? Yet again, we're just an overlooked group of shepherds. And as they sit there, a few of them begin to lay out their bed mats because they're going to take a rest while the other ones prepare to take their watch because they would swap out throughout the night. And as they're kind of getting settled for the evening, all of a sudden, the darkness of the night sky is shattered. The glory and the radiance of God shows up. And they're not just startled. This isn't just a jump fright. This isn't like, whoa, got a little... I mean, they are terrified. They are scared out of their gourds. Uh, they, they made a mess. They are, and, and so the angel says, whoa, whoa, don't, don't be afraid. I've got a message of hope for you. And it's not just for you. It's for everyone. So here's what it says in verse 8. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. The angel said to them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you, I love that, unto you, this is a personal message. Yes, it's for all people, but now the angels are talking to them, to you personally. And just pay attention how many times now the word you is used. For unto you, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those with whom he is pleased. So let me tell you a little bit about the shepherds. Uh, We sometimes... Uh, in our day and age, with 2,000 years of church history, thousands of years of biblical history, we can um, romanticize the idea of what a shepherd was, right? I mean, Jesus is called the good shepherd, we, the 23rd Psalm, uh, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We, 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 David was the shepherd boy who grew up to defeat Goliath. Uh, we think of shepherds as some noble thing. That's not how they were looked at 2,000 years ago in, in, in Jerusalem, in, in Israel, in, in Bethlehem. They were looked at with scorn. The Jewish Talmud says to avoid, this is, how it, this, this is what it said when it came to keeping kosher, right? With the, the laws, not just kosher eating, but the, the laws. It said in order to, to maintain your purity, you need to avoid the filthy, dirty creatures. That's how it referred to shepherds, filthy, dirty creatures. They're unclean. They carry disease. They're uneducated. They're unreligious. Very few of them kept Sabbath because they couldn't take 24 hours off. Sheep needed like care and concern all the time because sheep are dumb. So, edit that. So, they were looked at with suspicion. They were often considered untrustworthy. They were considered criminals, thieves, liars. They didn't have a lot of um, social standing. Uh, they, um, they, weren't, they didn't have a lot of relationships because they would travel with the herd. The herds didn't stay in the same places all the time. They would travel with them. So they didn't have a lot of relationships. So they were looked on with a lot of suspicion and mistrust. They were very, uh, they were just, they were looked on with scorn. So to these marginalized social outcasts, think now, if you're God, if you were God, 
And before the creation of the earth, you knew at just the right time, at a divinely appointed moment, at the, as the fullness of time, you were going to send your son born of a virgin. And you said, at that moment, when my son, whom I have always been in perfect union with, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is now going to take on the form of humanity. He's going to take on flesh and blood, and he's going to become God incarnate. And in that moment, God says, I'm going to announce this miracle to this group of social outcasts. Is that what you would have done? It's not what I would have done. I'd have blasted it on the news. I'd have said, I want a face-to-face interview with with whoever the the presiding uh, person on the news that we all trust, Walter Cronkite, if it was back in the day. You know, who who is that person? I'm going to announce it on the, the, the big screen of Jerry's world, uh, where the, the whole world is watching, you know, and there's a hole in the stadium and they can even see it. Uh, you know, I'm going I'm to announce it to the rich, to the powerful, to the influential. I, I don't know all the reasons why God chose this group of people. I believe one of them is because we can all relate to them, can't we? We all know what it feels like to be overlooked, to be marginalized, to, to kind of feel like an outcast, unwanted, unimportant, to feel like I've failed so many times, my life has no more chances, that everyone is better than me and everyone has it better than me. We can all relate to that. What very few of us can relate to is what it is. is we can't relate to the elite, the powerful, the rich, the famous, the influential. The reason that we look up to them is because most of us have no idea what that feels like, what it looks like, what it is like. But the common everyday person whose life just goes by and kind of seems forgotten in the annals of history, we can all relate to that, right? The the shepherds, we don't even know their names. They're just shepherds. They're, They're unknown. But yet, God says to them, I am going to make this amazing announcement. And what he says is when you feel like that, when you feel unimportant, when you feel forgotten about, when you feel like you're out of chances, there, there's a message of hope for you, and it's the same message of hope that I gave to the shepherds 2,000 years ago through my angels. And it's a message that hope brings us some things. And here's the first thing it does. Hope assures us that you are important to God. Listen, there's only one group of people that received a personal invitation from God to go visit Mary, Joseph, and and the baby Jesus. Only one group of people that God took the time to send his messengers and say, invite them to visit my son. The magi, the wise men, weren't given a personal invitation. They saw a sign in the heavens and they figured out what it meant. Anna, later on in in the Christmas story, who was a prophetess, didn't receive it. She was waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. There on the steps of the temple... And Mary and Joseph came to her. Those that heard, only one group received that personal invitation. What does that tell me? It tells me that God looks at you and at me and says, you are important. You matter. 
I care about you. I have a plan and a purpose for your life, and you're not overlooked, and you're not forgotten. You may feel that you've been marginalized and set aside and looked over by your friends, by your classmates, by your family, that you're not important, that you have no value, that nobody knows you and nobody cares about you, but God says, I know you and I care about you. That should fill us with hope. And God says, of everyone, I chose no one. See, what we see throughout history is God using nobodies to do great things. God pours his his honor and his favor and his grace and his blessing and his spotlight. That's what he does to the shepherds. He shines a spotlight on them. And he, he has shown a spotlight on those seemingly insignificant people throughout history and elevated them and used them in amazing ways. Think about a, a different man named Joseph, who was just a boy at the time. He was hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, and then left to rot in a prison. And yet God uses him to save his people. Think about Moses. Moses was sentenced to die as an infant. Then he ends up living his life on the run. He's a fugitive, an outlaw. He's living in a distant land, tending sheep. And God uses him to deliver his people. Think about Esther. Here's Esther. She's an orphan raised by her uncle. She's got no social standing. She is a foreigner in a, in a land. She's, she, she has no social standing, yet God shines his light on her, elevates her, allows her to marry the king. She has influence, and she risks everything in order to make sure her people are spared. Think about great King David, right? We all read his psalms and sing his praises. But here he was, the youngest boy of Jesse, so overlooked and so forgotten that when the prophet came to Jesse and said, bring your sons to me, he brought all of them except David. And and the prophet says, don't you have another son? He says, I forgot. I do. He's out in the sheep pen. How does that make you feel? Overlooked, forgotten, his brothers despised him. They mocked him. They, they, they made fun of him. And God uses him to not only defeat the giant, but to lead his people. And over and over and over again, throughout biblical history and throughout human history, God has used the seemingly forgotten, the marginalized, the unimportant, the overlooked to do great things. Jesus calls tax collectors and fishermen to be his disciples. He elevates a man who, he, who, who hated Jesus, a man named Saul of Tarsus. He elevates him to an apostle to help establish the church all throughout that region. God uses the least likely people then, and he uses the least likely people today. I am one. I have no right other than by God's grace to stand up here and preach. But God is gracious, and God looks and says, I'm no respecter of persons. I will elevate those who are humble of heart, and I will use them. So what does that mean for us? I love what Paul wrote to the the church in Corinth. He said, just look at yourselves, at those whom God has called. Not many of you are wise, not by the world standard. Not many of you wield power or boast noble birth, but God chose what the world considers foolish in order to shame the wise. God shows what the world considers weak in order to shame the strong. God shows what the world looks down on, overlooks, neglects, marginalizes, pushes aside, and counts as common 
or regards as nothing in order to bring to nothing what the world considers important so that no one should boast before God. God says you are of great value. You are of great importance. And I know there's times that you don't feel like that and you feel like everyone's against you and everything's against you and you have no value and no plan and no purpose. But God says, I have created you with a hope and with a purpose. And if you will trust me and if you will follow me and if you will allow my hope to fill your heart, you will realize you are more important than you've ever realized. But there are times when we'll convince ourselves, I have no value, I have no importance, nobody knows, nobody cares. If I die tomorrow, nobody's going to see me, nobody's going to miss me. And in those moments, you have to stop and say, no, that's not true. You have to hear what God says, unto you a Savior is born. I did this for you. Because you matter to me. You're important to me. I didn't just do this for all of mankind. I did it for all of mankind, but I did it for you personally. And so when those lies begin to flood your heart, you have to say, no, I'm going to hold on to the hope that I am important to God. So remember this, no matter how insignificant you think you are, you matter to God. Don't base your value on your feelings. You're not as important as you think you are, and you're not as, significant as, you, as, as, as insignificant as you feel you are. You, you can build yourself up way higher than you ought to, and you can tear yourself down way lower than you need to. Allow yourself to be defined by who God says you are, and you are of great, great, great value. You matter to him. To you, a Savior is born. The next thing hope does is this. Hope assures us that you can find peace with God. So not only do you matter to God, but you can find peace with God, right? What did the angels sing? We don't know, but the angel gives a message and then a multitude of angels show up. And we don't know how many. I, in my mind, I picture just a sky full, tens of, pounds, tens of thousands of them. But we don't know. It just says a multitude. But there they are and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. And some translations say peace and goodwill to men. That's a lot of us have probably heard that translation, and, and I'm not dissing that. I like the one we read better. On, on earth, peace with, to those with whom God is pleased. So how does peace come? Whom does peace rest on? What it's telling us is it rests upon, peace comes upon those whom God is pleased with. Who is God pleased with? Those who love him and live for him. Those who say, to the best of my ability, by God's grace and through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to live the way he asks me to live. I'm going to do the things he asks me to do. I'm going to say the things he asks me to say. Those that are living for God in word and in deed, in actions. God says, when you live like that and your life is in, align with, in alignment with how I ask you to live and your character reflects my character and your heart reflects my heart and your standards reflect my standards, and your way of speaking reflects my way of speaking. I'm well pleased with you, and you're going to experience my peace. I find it very fascinating that the declaration that the angel made focused almost entirely on the fact that Jesus came as Savior. It didn't really talk about his kingship at all, did it? Now, we read that into it because we know the story. And we, we know some other passages and interactions that the angels had. But in this declaration to the angels, it says to you, a Savior is born. doesn't talk about the kingship. 
But fast forward in the story, and when the, when the magi show up, when the wise men show up, they're not looking for a savior. They say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star. They came looking for a king. But the shepherds were told to go find the savior. What that tells me is this. We have to come to him first as savior. We come to, his, come to him first to say, I need forgiveness for my sin. I need a life that's going to begin to make sense. And then as we come to him as savior, it prepares us to serve him as king. See, God doesn't demand you have to serve me. But when we come to him as savior, all of a sudden we say, I want to serve you. I want to live a life that's reflective of how you ask me to live. And as we come to him as savior and serve him as king, we experience his peace. That peace that fills us, the peace that helps us, the peace that presides in our lives, in the ups and downs and the difficulties. See, Jesus came 2,000 years ago as what? The suffering savior, the suffering servant. But when he comes back, he's not coming back as the suffering savior. He's coming back as the conquering king whose kingdom will have no end. But we have to say, I'm coming to you, God, as savior. And when we do, we find that peace that reigns in our heart because we're at peace with God. We can find peace in our marriages and peace in our relationships and peace in our finances. We can find peace in so many ways because now we begin to live and serve him as king and as Lord and our lives are made right and we're adopted into his family and we have a place of security knowing that we are in his place and we are secure in his hand and we have a place in his family and at his table. But that peace is one of those things that sometimes feels fleeting, doesn't it? Like we could say all that. You say, okay, I have peace. I know I have peace. I have, I've come to God. I, I want that peace. And then what happens? We go to sleep. And as we're laying there, our mind racing, we're not on a hillside watching over our sheep at night. We're laying in bed, keeping watch over our stuff figuring out our finances, figuring out how this relationship got to this place. And we're all of a sudden filled with an uncertainty. We're filled with this sense of, I, I don't know where this peace went because fear creeps in. And in that moment, it's easy to say, where's the God who visited those shepherds 2,000 years ago? I need that visitation now because I need his peace. And we forget he is there. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us to you a savior is born so in those moments when your peace is threatened what you need to remember is this you need to allow jesus to step into the moment and bring you peace in that moment say i need your peace listen i don't care how old you are young you are rich or poor i don't care uh anything about your social status i don't care if you're powerful or weak, I know this, you'll never find lasting peace until you come to him as savior and serve him as king. Yes, you can get through life. You can convince yourself everything's fine and good and you don't have any problems and look how good my life is and you can tell yourself that until you're blue in the face. But until you get to that point, you'll never have the lasting peace of walking arm in arm with a God who knows you, who fills you with hope and who says, I understand and know and care about the struggle and the pain that you're going through. So invite him into those moments so that you can experience his peace. And the last thing that hope does is this. Hope assures you that you have a future through God. You have a future through God. So the angels tell the shepherds, 
this will be a sign to you. What the, what the angels were saying and what the shepherds heard was this. We are being called out. We're being challenged. If we want to see this thing that God declared, we have to step from what's comfortable into what's uncomfortable. We have to move from what we know to what we don't know. And there's risk in that. And it can be terrifying because they knew if we go to see this thing that's been told to us, we have to leave our sheep behind. If we leave our sheep behind, what if they wander away? What if they're devoured by wild animals? What if someone comes and steals them? There's risk in that. There's uncertainty in that. But if you want to step into the future that God has for you, your future, my future, is always full of uncertainty. It's always full of risk. There is an unknown aspect of our future. And at some point, we have to say, I'm willing to step from what's comfortable into what's uncomfortable. And the reason that some of us, we stand right on the edge of God breaking through in our lives in some amazing way, and what holds us back isn't God, it's us. Because he declares a truth to us, he reveals something to us, he asks something of us, and we say, I'd rather stay here than what's comfortable than to step out in faith. And we miss what God has for us. I know people that are business owners, and their businesses make a lot of money. I mean, we're talking about more money than I will have in my lifetime. And they have endeavored to tithe, to give 10% back to the local church of what the businesses gross before they even pay taxes and pay payroll and everything else. That's huge. You're talking hundreds and thousands of dollars, and they say, I'm going to tithe off of that. I know people in this church who have sold houses, and I'm not talking business owners who are flipping houses. I mean their personal homes. They've sold them. God opened a door, they're buying another house, they sell the house, and they take 10% of that, tithe it to God back through the local church, 10% of the sale of their house. That's a, that's a I mean, listen, it's, oh, it's mine, I need it. But then I've looked at their lives and seen, because God says, if you're faithful with little, I'll trust you with more. And they've done that, and they've taken those steps, and all of a sudden, that which was uncomfortable becomes this risk, and they step out, and God does something amazing in their lives and in their businesses. But it's not just in the financial world. Listen, when we step out of what's comfortable, God sometimes leads us to have to make decisions, to make stands, to have conversations that we never thought we'd have to have, make stands we never thought we'd have to make, declare truth that we thought was patently obvious to everybody. Sometimes when God calls us from what's comfortable to what's uncomfortable and challenges us to step into the future, it leads us down a path we never thought we'd have to go. Listen, I know some of you are walking through some things right now and it's hard and I can have a conversation with you because if you look at my life over the last 10 months, I've had to have some conversations I never thought I'd have to have and I've had to make some stands that I never wanted to have to make and I've had to, I've had to do some things in order to stand and live the way God's asked me to live that I never thought I'd have to do and it's risky and it's hard and it would be easy to compromise because when we look at our future, we say, I don't know what's going to happen if I do this, but I know this. If I don't live the way God's asked me to live, I know what's going to happen. It's not going to go the way God wants it to. So here's what you need to remember. When your future seems uncertain, be certain of the one who holds your future. God holds your future in the palm of his hand. You may not understand it because the future is unknown to us, but he is Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's not surprised by what the future holds, so trust him. See, the Bible is full of fear nots. 
tells us to fear not. The Bible also tells us how to face the future. Face the future with be, be strong and courageous. Be bold. Don't be terrified. Walk by faith and not by sight. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Count your life as forfeit. I am crucified with Christ and yet I live. But the life I live, the future I step into is no longer mine. But it's, it's for the one that I love and who gave himself for me. So the Bible tells us all these things. And yet there are those moments where we look at our future and we don't know what to do. And that's when we need to say, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds my future, so I'll do what he has asked me to do. So God speaks through his angels to these shepherds, and he says, I'm calling you to step from what you know to what you don't know. And they could have had every excuse in the book not to go. I think maybe we just drank a little too much wine with dinner. I don't know what I heard. I don't know what you heard, but let's not talk about this. They could have analyzed it. They could have debated it. They could have said, this is too hard. God's asking too much. I don't want to do this. They could have made every and any excuse to do anything and respond any way except to walk in faith. And yet, what is it that they do? This is what it tells us. It says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. The angels disappear as suddenly as they appeared. And the shepherds say, well, let's go see if this is true. I don't know if we can believe the message of the angels. Let's go verify. That's not what they said. They stepped out in faith. They said, let's go see this thing that has happened. They believed it happened even though they hadn't seen it. That's what faith is. So they step out in faith, and it says they went with haste. They run into town, legs burning, trying to catch oxygen, and they stumble into town. And there they see in this little probably cave off by the hillside, not too far from where they were, just on the edge of town, they see this light burning and they know in there there'd be a manger. And so they go in and they see a man standing there and a woman. And they hear a babe crying. And they rush in and they say, wow, it is our Savior. They can't believe it. They, 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 they are blown away that the God of the universe told them that, that his son had been born. And as they see it, their hearts are full of joy. And what do they do? They leave. They leave. Worshiping God, telling people all about this. And it says, the people that heard wondered at what the shepherds said. Now, you can interpret that word wonder a lot of different ways. This is how I kind of look at it. These people hear these, these shepherds talking about angels and babies and saviors and, and messiahs. And, and they go, I wonder how much them boys drank tonight. I wonder what kind of scam they're trying to pull. What kind of con are they playing I wonder what, what in the world these, these good-for-nothings are, are doing in town at all. I wonder what it is that they're, they're, they're even talking about. It doesn't even make sense. 
See, I believe at that moment, they're marginalized all over again. They're pushed aside and they're set to the, to the back burner and they're just overlooked and outcast once again. But something changed in them. They found hope. Hope that they could find peace with God. Hope that they mattered to God. Hope that they had a future through God and their perspective changed. They didn't care if they were marginalized for people because they mattered to God and he filled their heart with joy and they walk away singing, glorifying God, singing his praises, talking about how amazing God is. Nothing changed outwardly. Everything changed inwardly. And that's the hope of Christmas. When Jesus is your hope, he fills your heart with joy. And that is the hope that we have. Because all of a sudden, we know we matter. We know we can find peace. And we know we have a future. See, 2,000 years ago on Christmas, God brought hope to the outcast, to the marginalized, to the overlooked, to people just like you and just like me. I'm never going to be rich, powerful, or famous. And most of you are never going to either. And God said, there's hope for you. You matter to me. You can have peace with me. And you can have a future through me. What does that mean? It means that in life, until Jesus comes back, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of war. There's going to be wars between nations. There's going to be war between political parties. There's going to be war in your relationships. There's going to be war within yourself. In this life, until Jesus comes back, there's going to be sickness. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be death. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be hardship. But you can have peace with God because you have hope. You can live a life full of joy because you can have hope. You can know that you have a future beyond this life. You have a future in the life to come because you have hope in Jesus Christ. And that's meant to fill you with joy unspeakable joy. Heavenly Father, I come to you now and I thank you for the hope that we receive through your son Jesus. May the assurance of hope fill us with joy here this morning and this entire Christmas season. And in the days, weeks, months, and years to come, if you're here this morning and you say, I need hope poured into my heart, I just want to pray for you. You would just raise your hand. You don't have to stand. You don't have to come forward. Just raise your hand and say, I need a new measure of hope here this Christmas. I need that reminder that I matter, that I'm important, that I'm not a failure, that I'm not a loser. I need hope because I need greater peace with God within my own life. I need hope for my future because it's scary and I don't know what's next. But I want to do what God asked me. And if he calls me out and asks me to step out, I don't want to hesitate. I want to go with haste. If that's you, just raise your hand. Heavenly Father, I pray for the hands that are raised. Would you right now, by your Holy Spirit, pour hope into us, hope that fills us, fills us to overflowing so that out of our bellies would flow rivers of living water, God, that out of us would be joy, unspeakable joy, joy that permeates every aspect of who we are because we know this life is just the beginning. We have a future that's secure in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.